0: You're listening to a download from theoutdoorstation.co.uk Number 504
1: Hello and welcome back to The Outdoor Station and another slightly longer podcast than normal. So sit back and hopefully this will fill your daily commute nicely. But first, have you listened to the latest podcaster on the block? No? Who do I speak of? Well, have a search for the Living Adventurously podcast by none other than, you guessed it, Alistair Humphreys. Alistair is now getting down with the cool kids and recorder in hand, asking all kinds of deep and meaningful questions about the meaning of adventure with interesting people he met during a month's cycle ride this summer. I'll put a link into the show notes and I think you will enjoy it. Now, Alistair sends regular emails under the banner shouting from my shed, where he promotes and gets very excited about various outdoor events, adventure and personal projects. Although I do do a bit of promotion when I get time, it isn't nowhere near as consistent and prominent, and quite frankly, the current self-promotion world we live in makes me feel slightly awkward. However, I do recognise I need to do more. Looking towards 2020, Alistair, now dipping his toes into the podcasting world, has inspired me to get more assertive about such things. For example, I usually start this podcast with the line The UK's longest running podcast for outdoors people since 2005 or something along those lines. However, following some research this week, I think I'm going to go bigger. Does anyone know if there's any reason I can't up my announcement to the world's longest running podcast for hikers, backpackers, travellers, adventurers... Etc. Now, I started back in October 2005, and as far as I know, all the US producers who started before me, such as Practical Backpacking, have long since ceased production. Now, I could be wrong, but do any of you, especially those in the States, know of anyone who has been producing for this audience longer? If so, could you please drop me a line? Because I reckon that statement would make a great t shirt. Anyway, on to today's interview with Alice Boas, a northern lass who has taken to the world of adventure travel like the proverbial duck to water. If you drop by her website, aliceboas.com, you'll see she has done many epic cycle rides and a fair number of pack rafting adventures. On these trips, she's mixed wild camping, hot showers and couch surfing for accommodation and to mix with the locals. There's loads to read on her website. And as such, I thought I would mix up the usual interview format this time and talk more generally about lifestyle choices, travel experiences and solutions to basic problems she's had to overcome en route.
0: I was like 22 when I qualified as a teacher. Um, I'd had a year in a really rough school after qualifying and then I had a nicer school in my second year of qualifying. And then I had a boyfriend at that time. So I'd moved to her, into a house with a boyfriend. The school I was working at was quite nice. Everything was quite cushy. And I'd read some books about like adventures and like people doing really cool things. And in my head, I could just imagine that I could plan the next 25 years of my life. I was like, I'm probably gonna marry this guy. We'll end up buying a house together. I'm gonna be a teacher for the next 25 years. I'm gonna go on holiday during certain times of the year, cause that's the only time I can go. And the idea absolutely terrified me. So briefly, I built up my like adventures. So I cycled across the UK in two days. And that was like one of the first times I ever wild camped, which was amazing. Did a trip north to South Scotland on a bike. Then I did bottom of Albania to top of Croatia on a bike. And then after that, I decided, I was like, cool, I'm going to actually quit my job and do something different for a while. And that's where it all started.
1: So did you squeeze those bike trips into the school holidays?
0: Yeah. So I think the weekend one, I'd bought my bike and then cycled across the UK that weekend that I bought it. The Scotland trip must have been like a few weeks after I got my bike. That would have been in the spring half term. And then the Albania to Croatia trip was in the summer.
1: Well, I'll come on to your preparation and planning for your trips, because obviously that's a seems to be a common theme that runs through, runs through some of your travelling history. But I, I guess that in between all this, you're still sort of trying to earn a crust and, and enough money to pay your basic bills and obviously save some money for
0: a trip. Yep. So I have nowhere to live, which definitely helps. <laughs> like, so I don't pay rent at all. And I do so this year i've done working as a bushcraft instructor for like big kids residential camps so that's residential so i literally sleep on the floor of a yurt and that's my accommodation and i also do expedition leading as well so i've done two expeditions this year year both to cambodia and obviously all your accommodation is included then and the rest of the year i'm trying like either crashing at friends houses or with family or living in a tent
1: and that's what I was going to say. So, you said 22, and I think you're turning 30 this year or next year. Am I right in thinking that?
0: Yeah, you've done your research.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, what? how have you managed then in the intervening eight years to fit in as many trips you've done and also financially keep the wall from the door?
0: So, I left teaching at 24, went to Australia and did a lot of cycling on Australia and New Zealand. But when I was in Australia and New Zealand, I worked for Oxfam as a street fundraiser and did that for a year in total. So, And I got managed to work it so that the tax years, this is a clever tip. If you only ever work half of a tax year, you get all your tax back, which means that if you choose to adventure for half the year and work for half the year, then you can get a big tax back payment. And that means that you have more money to fuel your adventures in the year after, which is pretty sneaky, but a great idea. Um, So I managed to live off savings from teaching and street fundraising for the first three years and then came back to the UK and I've been doing the outdoor instructing and living for free for the last one and a half two years which is quite a long time like
1: like, you've sound full of life obviously but I mean is it exhausting is it mentally tiring to not have you know a bunch of girlfriends around the corner you can go for a, a prosecco one evening or something
0: um I think the bit that's the hardest is like planning where all your things are and where you need to take them so like I'll have a job come up and I'll be like oh amazing oh no I've left that thing at like my mate's house so I've got my boots there I've got like I don't know my tent is in one person's house and then all of a sudden you're trying to coordinate multiple things in multiple places I think this is the first year where I've been like it's actually getting a bit hectic now so um I'm I'm gonna have to sort something out for the future I reckon or I'm getting to that point where I'm starting to think oh it'd be nice to have somewhere to keep things that's mine doesn't have to be a house it could literally be a shed just anything where you can dump all your things and know that everything lives there, potentially a van. Maybe living in a van would be the next step.
1: Well, talking of which, just to give uh, listeners a clear idea of where you are at this very moment, here we are, we're recording this December 2019. Would you like to describe your current surroundings?
0: Yep. So currently I'm in a motorhome in a park in West London, and I'm doing a job where I sell Christmas trees for a month. So you work 12-hour, 13-hour shifts from eight in the morning to eight at night, but you get given a motorhome to live in. So that's pretty cool. Only problem is the motorhome isn't connected to water and we've got a generator for all of our electricity. So we're running off gas and we're having to collect all our water from a tennis court that's like 10-minute walk away. Um, so we can't have showers in the motorhome.
1: And is it is it a luxurious motorhome or are we talking very basic one?
0: It's pretty nice. Like I'm sleeping on the side bed and my friend Phoebe's got the top bed. And yeah, we're enjoying living in it, and it's warm, and that's the most important thing. So it is pretty cushy, and it's nice to be somewhere for a month. So this is the longest I've lived anywhere this year, will be this motorhome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and what, where do you go after this? Where What have you got lined up? Somebody else's sofa?
0: Um, so I'm going to go home for Christmas, and then I'm going to walk the Camino in January, February, which I'm really excited about.
1: The Camino to Santiago?
0: Yeah. So that'll be January, February. So I'll live in a tent or like in the little hostels along the way. So that'll be really good
1: fun. Well, I've interviewed a few people who have done that. I'm sure it's going to be a pretty chilly time to do it, isn't it?
0: Yep. But this is the quiet time of the year for work. So I think it's the right time. Also, there'll be less people on the trail. I'm doing it with a friend. So that should be quite nice.
1: Cool. Okay. Well, I mean, we must have a chat with you after that because you'll be the first person that, that I've spoken to that's done it sort of out of the normal warmer season, shall we say. So um, hopefully everything in the hostels and stuff will be, be open for you, certainly. Anyway, I've got loads of questions, all sort of completely random, really. Now, for people that don't know, you must go and have a look at your website, which is alicebowers.com. And in there, we've got cycling trips uh, south and North Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Myanmar, Bangladesh and Nepal. And pack rafting down the Darjeeling, Darjeeling, <laughs> pack rafting down the Darling River, Franklin and Gordon River, pack rafting in Bangladesh and the clutha river from source to sea where's the clutha river
0: Uh, that's south Island and new zealand it's like the longest the longest river in the south island
1: fantastic did you do that the same time you were doing the cycling over there or is that a separate trip
0: so i'd done the cycling and i'd seen that river but i didn't have a packraft then and i'd cycled alongside that river and been like oh wow that looks amazing and then got back to australia went on ebay found a packraft from a couple that had driven from the UK to Australia and were selling their packraft at the end of the trip and um, then bought it off them and was like, screw it, that's it, I'm going to go to New Zealand, I'm going to packraft that river, which was really cool and I'd not really ever been on a rapid before, so it was a little bit of a baptism of fire. But I didn't fall out, so I was happy.
1: Right, well let's just touch on this one thing that's obviously, that's popped up several times in reading your, your blog and also a previous interview that you've had. Now, forgive me, it's not an insult. It's more a question of an observation. You don't do an awful lot of preparation, do you?
0: No. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I do. I mean, yeah, I don't think I I do the minimal amount of of, um, preparation. I mean, I have the stuff. And if you've got the stuff and you've got some form of map, then I think you're probably going to be okay and food
1: <laughs> yes i like your your approach of well i intend to uh, run from a to b and i've not run before but by the end of day one i should have learned how to run and by the time i get to b then i'll be super fit
0: yeah yeah cycling was definitely like that like i wasn't a cyclist at the beginning but by the end of it i could cycle a fair distance without being tired like but i'm definitely not a cyclist still
1: well, if people read your uh, read your blog, I'm sure they'll disagree with you on that score. But uh, what I uh, impressed me most of all, actually, because we're all gear freaks uh, at the end of the day, is that you have pretty well furnished your entire um, outdoor activities from eBay and Gumtree or secondhand sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, love it. You can eBay anything. I'm a bit addicted to eBay, though. It's an actual problem. But then the good thing about eBay is you can just sell it on again afterwards if you don't like it, and you probably get the exact same price. And the pack rafts, like, I've got two of them now, and they, they hold their value really well. So you basically might as well get them, and then you can always sell them on afterwards if you stop using them.
1: Well, let's come on nicely to pack rafting, actually. I've never done it. Always interested to to see how to, to progress. So first of all, what's the thrill? What's the experience? What's the joy of pack rafting?
0: You can get to pretty wild places that you wouldn't be able to get to with a normal boat. So, for example, we did me and a friend did a trip in Tasmania. And there's no roads there. So you wouldn't be able to get a canoe down to the river spot where we entered the river. So you had to paddle up and then walk for a day to get to the entry point. So the good thing about having the packraft is that you can pack it down and it's in your backpack and it only weighs about four or five kilos with all the gear included. So you can get to really remote places and you can also combine it with other adventurous activities. Like quite a lot of people have done it when they've cycled with it and they put their bike on the front. But it's really great for hiking. So you can hike paddle, hike, paddle. That's like the joy of it.
1: So are you saying then that on an average pack rafting trip, you would take your normal backpacking gear and then just the pack raft, or is there any additional stuff as well that goes with it?
0: So Tassie, we took hiking gear and the pack rafting gear, but my other trips have all mainly been based around the fact that I'm just going to be on a river for the two, three weeks or four weeks or something. So I haven't done like a big trip that's combined hiking and pack rafting yet. But I think that that will definitely happen at some point. So when
1: you were pack rafting in Bangladesh, for example, then, what was the difference in your gear that you took with you on that particular approach? Because you actually specifically went to do that trip, didn't you?
0: Tried to go as light as possible. But at the same time, Bangladesh was a bit different because there were two of us at the beginning of the trip. So I was having to get all the gear together for two people. Because obviously you can't buy like decent outdoor gear in Bangladesh, so that made it a little bit more difficult. But in the end, it was just what you would take on a normal camping trip with a bit of packrafting gear included. So like maybe a PFD. We didn't need helmets because the river wasn't going to be fast enough. There was there's no rapids on that river, so that might that might be a bit blasé to say that, but you didn't really need helmets. So it was just basically basic packrafting stuff as combined with a load of camping things in a dry bag.
1: And what about the preparation as regards the mapping to, uh, and research you might do, all right being brief research, but research you might do to make sure that a river doesn't have lots of rapids or is not in spate in that particular season?
0: Bangladesh, we did it in, so my friend was Bangladeshi that I started with, and we did it in the dry season, so we made sure we weren't there in the wet season because it would have just been crazy in the wet season and i looked at google maps for rivers the problem with the rivers in bangladesh is that they're really shallow um about two-thirds of the country is less than five meters above sea level so they're really braided and all of the google maps that i had were probably from the year before and because it has a monsoon season every year, the river floods and the river changes direction completely. So there were bits of the trip where I'd be like on the river on Google Maps because I had a Bangladeshi SIM card and I would be technically on a sandbank when I was clearly on a river, according to Google Maps satellite imagery. But the good thing was there was um, lots of local fishermen that I could just kind of point down river and make a face at as though like which way and they'd be able to point you the right way. You wanted just to get on the biggest channel you could and stay on that channel so that you were maximizing energy output.
1: So with the the packraft itself then, I noticed in your gear list you, you list off the Exped 50 work and rescue pack. Is that your sort of standard bread and butter pack?
0: So I've got that one and I've also now got like a dry bag backpack that I bought from, I can't even remember the name of it. It's not an expensive one. It's like, basically a dry bag with a little bit of a backpack attached and that is 80 to 100 litres so that one's a bit bigger the x-bed one really you can't fit enough in it you can get the pack craft and everything in but you can't take any extra gear
1: yeah that's what i was trying to get to as regards how much volume does a packraft take on top of your normal hiking gear
0: yeah i you definitely need a much bigger backpack so i had for the bangladesh trip i had an 80 litre dry bag for the back for the pack craft originally but i also had a 30 litre separate backpack so I had like 120 litres capacity but once the packraft is out then obviously and you've got your paddle out and your PFD and all the rest of it then you're all of a sudden you've got hardly any weight with you you've literally got like a tent and a sleeping bag in in dry bags but it would what well, if you were going to do a proper hiking packrafting trip you'd have to seriously consider because we did do that when we were doing the Tassie trip and that was like a five six day trip and we, I used like the eighty litre capacity dry bag then, and I just about had enough space with all my camping gear.
1: So I presume then that once you've got the the, the raft inflated and and are set up from that point of view, then everything else goes inside the the dry bag uh, for obvious yep. reasons uh, until yep. you actually camp. And I, I take it you don't deflate the uh, the pack raft at night; you leave it inflated.
0: Leave it inflated, and then if it needs a to top up in the morning, just top it up a little bit with some air, and you're good to go again.
1: Fantastic. Okay. You can go
0: and sleep, can you?
1: can you that big i thought we sort of you had limbs hanging off them
0: um yeah you do have limbs hanging off them when you sleep or you curl up into a little ball but i did like a weekend trip and decided i was going to sleep in it the first time i did it and um it was very uncomfortable but you can definitely sleep in them
1: (laughs) interesting how tall are you
0: five seven okay
1: Okay, painting pictures, painting pictures. This is going to be sort of fairly random dotting around with relating to certain trips and and questions, which I'm sure people will find uh, the answers interesting to because it will cross most people's mind. But as we're talking about Bangladesh, let's just start there. The region you went through was obviously a fairly poor area by comparison to, to New Zealand or whatever. Let's talk about practicalities. How did you manage as regards water and water purification for drinking?
0: So we went to like boreholes along the way because there's, I mean, it's ridiculously densely but like populated Bangladesh. So you could just get off in a village, find some kind of waterhole, bought like bore pump thing that they use for their water supply, and then pop a couple of purification tablets in it just to be certain. The difficult bit was actually because I ended up staying in lots of villages with local people. I barely camped really, and when you got to their house, they'd offer you water, and it's really rude to be like, oh, I can't drink that water because I haven't got a purification tablet in it. So I did end up just drinking whatever water I was offered. And I did get, I got quite a bad stomach, but it wasn't super bad. And I just got antibiotics like later on in the trip. So it was fine. But um, that was the most difficult bit. It wasn't actually purifying the water. Like I wouldn't drink the water from that river. It was more trying not to offend people when it came to going to their houses and eating their food and drinking their like supplies of water. podcasting around yeah. It's all about getting out and having much more fun. This is the Outdoor Station.
1: And that leads me to another question of how did you feel when people were obviously offering their accommodation or food or whatever to you from a fairly poor background? Do you you sort of recompense them in some way? How did did you take that yourself? How did you feel?
0: Um, So for the first week, I had my Bangladeshi friend Russ with me. So Russell was able to speak in Bangla to them. So we had like a lot, like he could translate type thing. And for them, it was like exciting having someone else around. And they wanted to make you feel welcome. So they wanted to offer you a meal. And if you'd offered them money, they would have been offended. So it was It was almost like a bit, there was a bit of pride involved in hosting the foreigners on the weird packraft things. So that was, part of it was coming to terms with that. And like, they didn't want money or anything. What they wanted was for you to sit in their living room and for the entire village to be able to come in and watch you eat your dinner in their house.
1: And then you've had a few interesting experiences about dinners and being woken up at night with people with torches and even having a shower, I understand as well.
0: One woman was. She, he was like, "Oh, do you want my wife to bath you?" And I was like, "I think I'm okay, but thank you for the offer."
1: <laughs> the friend you were with didn't complete the trip with you. So, how did you manage when you're on your own? How did did things change dramatically for you from the way that you were received by by the local villagers?
0: Um, was that didn't change at all? It stayed like we were draw, when Russ was, was with me. We were still drawing like massive crowds of people. What changed was that. I wasn't really able to communicate as well. So there was no like really hairy situations and I had a local SIM card in my phone. So if I did have a really like a conversation where I was like, I really don't know what's going on right now, then I could phone Russ. Russ would translate over the phone to that whoever I was talking to. And then Russ would then translate back into English for me. So say if it was someone being like, oh, you, you can't stay here because it's not safe. And Russ would, I'd put them onto the phone to Russ. Russ would tell me, and then I'd be like, "Cool, where can I stay that's safe?" And we'd eventually come to some kind of agreement. That happened quite a few times on the trip. So I'd turn up in a village and just walk to the police station. And then when I got to the police station, the police were really confused. So then I'd get them to speak to Russ on the phone, and they'd find somewhere for me to stay for the night, which was usually like I don't know, like a charity's, like the like some random room in a charity. Or maybe like a government guest house or something for the evening.
1: Yeah, and when we were travelling many many years ago in the eighties, it was it was a case you'd go to the chief in the in the village, and and it was his duty and as you say, pride to to host you, or somebody in the village would host you, and it was a matter of importance that you were looked after. So that's obviously not changed. But the one thing that has changed there, and obviously you had the ultimate in Google Translate. What would you have done? Or could you manage to do some of these trips now, or in all honesty, without a smartphone?
0: The answer is yes. But I think it would... Personally, I'd feel a bit more unsafe. Like, having Russell as a backup was amazing. And being able... If there was something that was like, oh, I really don't know what's going on right now, then I could speak to Russell and that was great. Um, But I think... So it is definitely possible without a smartphone. Like, you you can do anything without a smartphone. It's just you've not got that back up so you'd have to plan that into your like mental preparation that you're not going to have that option and i think it would make it more unsafe actually
1: would you say that's probably the most vital piece of traveller's accessory these days
0: i don't want to say yes i really don't want to say yes but potentially yes
1: (laughs) I know. I know. It's awful, isn't it? I, I, I remember speaking to a couple from Scotland that cycled around the world, and they took sort of three, four years, and I kept in touch with them on and off. And they were saying that when they went through China, the broadband was far superior to wherever they were were in Scotland, as it were. But they just couldn't have managed to do the trip without an iPad. They're just the translation, the bookings, the the following things up, the emails. They, they it would have been virtually impossible
0: yeah which is quite sad really that we now have a situation like that however that does mean maybe my next trip i could just chuck my phone away
1: well there you <laughs> are there's a challenge for you they you do the next trip without anything at all uh no if i remember rightly you had your uh, phone stolen from you was it in vietnam or something
0: uh, indonesia in java But it was it was totally fine. Like it was a couple of teenagers on the back of a moped. I was looking at Google Maps on my phone and they took it out of my hand. And I did manage to like cycle after them and keep up with them because there was heavy traffic for quite a while. And then they got away. And then I had a spare phone at the bottom of my pannier. So I did go to the police to report it. It was clear that nothing was going to happen after three hours of sitting in the police station. And then I just went and got another SIM card and I was off again. It was. Yeah very easily rectified and also even if I hadn't had that spare phone I would have been totally fine like because you just ask for the nearest big place on a map and people would just point you in that direction then when you get to that big place you just buy another phone
1: when you're on your various remote trips uh bangladesh being the one probably that immediately comes to mind but obviously malaysia indonesia can be the same way as well and and particularly nepal how do you carry money what's what's the system that tends to work best for travelers these days
0: um so i had i don't know a hundred pound in a pannier and then in whatever currency it is when i get there and maybe a hundred hundred dollars as well that's pretty handy to have and then i had two bank cards i didn't ever have a credit card And I think a lot of other people will have had a credit card, whereas I just had, when I was doing one of my bike rides, I had an Australian bank card and a UK bank card. And my UK bank card did get like cancelled when I got to Nepal and I had to Skype NatWest to get them to reopen my account because they thought it was dodgy. And I was like, no, that was me. Um, But I think most of the time now you can get by with like just basic two cards and some cash and you're totally fine.
1: And what about the smartphone payment systems or doing bank transfers or whatever using the smartphone? Is that an option these days?
0: Exactly the same, yeah. You can get those like special cards now like Monzo and Starling and they don't charge you when you go abroad for like up to a £500 or something. And you can just transfer money so easily from like one bank account to another now. It's like instant transferable almost that, yeah, you there isn't any issues with it anymore. And worst comes to worst, you can always, if you've got an internet connection, you can just Skype your bank using Skype credit and get them to take your bank off bank card off hold or whatever they've done to it.
1: Another use for the smartphone.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it is a bit scary how useful they are.
1: Right, right. Back to practicalities again. Cycling in Australia, in the Outback. Uh, I've uh, been there. I haven't cycled in Australia, but I have driven across the Nullarbor Plain, and that was a fascinating experience and camping overnight watching the kangaroos go by was wonderful now you cycled south to north australia which was a very epic trip i never actually managed to get to Ayers rock at the time very expensive to get there by by normal commuting methods it's a good couple of thousand miles to cycle isn't it
0: yeah i don't actually remember how long it was it took me about five weeks i think to get from adelaide to darwin but the entire time I was cycling in Australia was about three and a half, four months because I did a very strange route. But um, the the bit from Adelaide all the way up to Darwin, that was about five, six weeks. So
1: what did you take with you? Again, coming back to simple things like food, water, and obviously preparation for um, being caught out in the sun because it's it can be pretty intense there. Although having said that, I'm looking at your website at the moment. It looks like you did it November to December, so that's there... That's their winter, so that's cooler. And then July to October, that's their autumn?
0: The main bit of it I did, so the December was hot, but the main bit of it I did in like July, August, September through the middle, and that was the best time of year to do it. Up near Darwin, it was still hot. It was still like pushing 35, 37 degrees and really humid, but it was down to zero degrees at night in the outback. So you needed a good sleeping bag. Or you at least need... a multiple layers of clothing in a relatively okay sleeping bag <laughs> like,
1: or a very good friend uh, so cycling in in across the desert in australia i mean it's very hot as you say hot, cold in the evenings uh, what did you do as regards food uh, cooking and uh, water
0: um the most le- i think i had to carry 12 liters of water at one point which was ridiculous because i really hadn't planned very well so i ended up buying like two bottles of water and I had uh, strapped like six of them onto the back of my bike and they kept like falling off every time I went into like a mini pothole and that entire road wasn't tarmacked so I spent quite a lot of that section of the ride picking up water bottles off the floor which was ridiculous I definitely wouldn't recommend that I've now invested in like larger water holding things but um yeah plastic bottles probably isn't the way to go but uh yeah food literally just filled a bag full of like tinned food and pasta and sauce I didn't, it was probably like five days between water. There was like little rest stops where you could get water as well. It wasn't actually anywhere near as big a feat as I thought it would be. And in terms of the sunshine, I just got an amazing tan. (laughs) I don't think I actually wore sun cream other than on my nose, which I probably shouldn't say because that will be, yeah, I shouldn't advocate that. But I did have the worst tan lines in the world when I finished.
1: So you didn't completely cover up then, it was you just managed with the the season?
0: Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think I've worn sun cream on any of my trips, apart from a little bit on my nose and a little bit on my shoulders.
1: Wow. Okay. And now looking at the picture of the bike that you are standing next to in front of Ayers Rock, uh, uh, I can never pronounce it, Uluru, uh, that's why I call it Ayers Rock. That's not the same bike that you've been doing your other trips on, is it? Yeah, it's the same
0: bike. Oh, it's it's just-, just that... it yeah i've like put pink handlebar tape on it and changed the pedals and i've changed the like wheels on it the only thing that is actually the same is the actual frame of the bike but it's still the same bike
1: and that bike is a surly long haul trucker is that right so that's now that's not a cheap piece of equipment that's obviously a a good investment so what made you choose that was it just purely it was a bargain on ebay at the time
0: So I didn't get that secondhand. I got that one as part of like the cycle to work scheme and I paid it off monthly when I was teaching. So I, and the only reason I bought it is because I had a really good friend at the time that was super into cycling. He wanted to go on a cycle trip. He'd done all the research into what bike to buy. And I was like, cool, if you've already done all the research, I don't need to. So I'm just going to go to the shop and get that bike. So I went to the shop, told them that I wanted that bike in my size, went back to pay for it because she had to put, obviously, like, pay a deposit on it and blah, blah, blah. And um, it rejected my card, which was a bit embarrassing, because my credit history was apparently so bad. So then I had to phone my mum and tell my mum to put it on her card and just transfer the money each month, which was mildly embarrassing. And my mum on the phone was like, why are you buying a bike that's over £1,000? Um, she do not think she was very happy with me at the time. But since then, she understands because I've used that bike a lot like that bike was my commuter and then i've used it for so many holidays since
1: i was going to say that must be a part of you the bike now does it have a name
0: i so say the name is surly because it is the brand surly and she's a bit of a cow actually she's not she can't she can sometimes be really horrible in what way um she says nasty things so you'll be psyched <laughs> <cycling> along <laughs> and she'll be like i wish that someone else had bought me if somebody else had bought me then we'd be getting there a lot faster right now and but sometimes when she's like she sometimes says nice things and that's when you know that you've worked really really hard because if you've managed to impress her then you've done a really good job
1: so as bikes go then is is that uh, I, mean, I take it's not a super lightweight bike it's a solid reliable tourer yep. that, that you've in over the years managed to strip down and replace all the parts as you need to
0: Yep, she's been absolutely amazing, like could not falter at all. Like the only thing that I needed, so the first trip I did abroad, put it on the plane and I managed to bend the front forks in. So I had trouble getting my front wheel on, which it did eventually get on. It was just that if I got a puncture, it was going to be a pain to fix. But um, and then I had to replace the front forks. And that was because I hadn't put a piece of plastic between the front forks when I'd originally put it on the plane so I've now got a little piece of plastic that you can get from any bike shop to put in between forks and I carry that with me all the time just for putting it on a plane
1: And do you find that to be a really uh, awkward experience to put it on a plane? Do you put it into one of these material based bags or do you sort of get loads of cardboard and strap it up in cardboard?
0: Um, So usually I just go to any bike shop and ask if they've got a spare cardboard bike box and because of your smartphone you can just message a bike shop in advance so even in, I had to fly from Myanmar, Yangon to Bangladesh to Dhaka, because there was no other way to get through, um, because none of the border points are open, and I just messaged a couple of bike shops in Yangon before I got there, and I paid a fiver for a bike box when I got there, and it's all organised. It was insanely easy.
1: Mm, Takes all the fun out of it, doesn't it?
0: I was a bit worried about it beforehand, though, because I hadn't really... I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to just get a load of cardboard and just duct tape it all together and hope that it survives. But then when I found that bike shop and they messaged me back saying, yep, we got a bike box, I was like, oh, amazing, sorted. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions, why not drop us a line either on Facebook or directly to our email address, info at theoutdoorstation.co.uk.
1: The home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for outdoors people everywhere. On these long cycle trips that you've been doing, particularly in Australia that comes to mind, because I recognise the distances involved, we all have little habits of things. As You say the bike obviously talking to you is one of your habits. The other one that uh, tends to just be curious to know is what piece of music goes round and round and round in your head that you can't get rid of?
0: Oh, that's really difficult because there's lots of songs in my head all the time. Uh. Build Me Up Buttercup, that one goes throughout through my head quite a lot. ABBA, any ABBA song, that's definitely on the list. And then what I usually do is just put my own lyrics to the song because I don't know them. Because I didn't carry music with me the entire time I was away. And I've never taken music on a trip. So it's just been if I don't know the lyrics, then I'll just make my (laughs) own. Usually related to my surroundings.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Playing I Spy With Yourself by the sound of it.
0: I think in Bangladesh, the song was, I want to know what flow is, and I want you to show me, because there was no flow in the river. It was just paddling flat water for weeks.
1: Oh, dear. The equipment now, just to, again, come back to things that a lot of outdoor people will relate to, I'm sure. Over the last uh, six, eight years you've been doing this now, I presume you've stripped things down to the absolute basics for obvious reasons or, or that you're carrying less and also you can get more food in should you wish to do longer stretches or food and water what would you say is your bread and butter equipment that will cover you for most things because it sounds like even though it's dotted around the country in different people's bedrooms or wherever it's stored at the moment you can pretty well get yourself sorted and packed and gone in a very short period of time
0: well with that yeah it'd be a good backpack then like literally a backpack that's going to just do the job that you can put everything into and it doesn't really matter so like just get so when I was cycling I wanted a backpack on the back so I had that Exped backpack because it was a dry bag and that was really helpful because it meant that if I wanted to stop and go hiking for a few days so I did Mount Rinjani and yeah I could just stop take my backpack off fill it with the bare essentials and go for a couple of days hiking three four days hiking so that was really helpful because a lot of people when they're cycling they just have their cycle panniers and it means that when you want to do something different you're then limited by what you've got with you. So by having a good backpack, you can just get off and do something different for a few days when you don't want to cycle anymore.
1: And I've noticed with your cycle panniers, certainly with the pictures I've seen there, some of them probably from your earlier trips are really, you're really quite heavily laden or they look very full. Have you managed to get that stripped down now to absolute basics that you need, just like a change of clothes and a cooker and that's it?
0: So recent trips, yes. But uh, like when I cycled across Australia, something that I haven't told very many people is that I had a pair of mini hair straighteners with me with <laughs> the most ridiculous extra item ever. Because <laughs> in my head, I was like, it's going to be very humid up in Northern Territory. And at some point, I'm going to want to look nice when I'm staying at someone's house. So I'll take a pair of mini hair straighteners just in case. And I did use them twice. And both times I felt absolutely fabulous. But <laughs> since then, I have got rid of them. Mini hair straighteners are no longer part of my kit list.
1: <laughs> well, you just you just taken away one of the questions I was going to ask you is what was your best piece of kit in all your adventures? What's your worst piece of kit? I think you've just answered that one.
0: Yeah, but that was pr- I was pretty like happy with that the entire time though. So I remember there was a few other cycle tours and they were like, "Wow, you're really heavily laden." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I've got mini hair straighteners and everything." And they look at you like you're completely mad. But I did use them twice, and both times I felt really good about myself. So. And I was really tired when I used them. And afterwards, I felt a lot more energetic because I felt like a girl again. So in my head, it was worth it.
1: You're worth it. The trips that you've done, I think there's probably majority have been cycling trips rather than packrafting, rafting. But there's a fair share. Is that that would be correct?
0: Yes, yeah, so I did like 13 months cycling and then packrafting altogether. Maybe I've done like two, three months packrafting.
1: So, regarding accommodation, I know you've got small tents, we'll perhaps touch that in a second, but I know you've used hot showers system and possibly, obviously, taken invitations and accepted invitations from people. Across the board, then, would you say, what has been the sort of greater percentage of accommodation that you've you've taken or accepted, whether it be at camping or, or hot showers, and also from a... A safety is not the right word but sort of a convenience or a feeling comfortable with people as it were how do you feel when you are offered accommodation by people you meet along the way
0: um so in australia and new zealand majority of my my like nights was camping and then i would use warm showers and couch surfing and occasionally people invited me in and i'd stay with them i think i probably paid for accommodation like a hostel twice in six months. But in Indonesia to Nepal, I did camp and I did end up using warm showers and couch surfing and like staying in police stations and wherever else I could stay. But I did end up staying more in like five quid a night hotels and things just because it was so hot and I wanted a shower at the end of the day. And camping as well, it was a lot more populated than New Zealand and Australia, so I didn't feel as safe while camping because I didn't want people to find me at night and because I didn't have a language in common. If someone had found me at night, I would have found it more difficult to explain why I was there. Um, In Iceland, I camped the entire way. Um, And then in terms of like feeling safe, I don't think I've ever felt unsafe when I've stayed at someone's house. Like ever. There was like a couple of weird instances where I was like, well, this is a bit bizarre. Like I was camping on a beach in Australia. And this guy came over to me and was like, hey, it uh, looks like you're camping. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, you can come around my house for dinner if you want. Uh, stay over if you want to. And I was like, oh, yeah, go on then, because he seemed all right. And then I got to his house and he was like, oh, if you want to get yourself a beer out the freezer, go for it. They're just staying cool. When I went to the freezer, there was like a load of dead Tasmanian devils in there. And I was like, "Mm, it's a bit weird. And he was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm just doing a load of research into they have, like, this growth that grows on their face and it's really bad for them. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense now. And in my head, I was like, this could have come across, like, really creepy axe murderer with a load of dead animals in his freezer. But he had a good explanation for it. And also after a couple of beers, I kind of forgot about it and then felt completely safe again. So it's fine. It
1: reminds me of when uh, I was hitchhiking in, in New Zealand with Rose and we're talking about the 80s now. And we were picked up in, uh, in a van by a couple of guys. Got in the back of the van and it was full of dead animals and a couple of, uh, a couple of rifles. Middle of nowhere, up on the west coast of, uh, of New Zealand. And uh, sort of said, oh, you know, I to try to make conversation. So well, what have you been hunting today then? He said, poms. <laughs> so uh, we both looked at each other and went, oh, well, thanks for the lift. But I think we'd better get out now. How do you manage to balance for people that would like to travel more or have adventures or whatever term they want to use, how do you manage to balance adventure versus reality versus money versus obligations?
0: That's really difficult because I don't think I've achieved that balance yet. Um, I think you've just got to be willing to make sacrifices. So, like, I chose five years ago six years ago to quit my job and do something different and that was like a choice that I made and I haven't lived like comfortably comfortably like I've not gone back to a house that I felt really comfortable in in like five years five years which is a long time um and also you don't have like friends around the corner but at the same time then you have amazing experiences so I don't think I've got that balance completely perfect but I I think it's all just about what you're willing to give up like if you want to go on around the world bike ride, then you have to realize that you're going to have to work ridiculously long hours before you leave, probably doing two, three jobs at a time to afford it. But then you're going to have like a year or two years off work. So I suppose just keeping that motivation in your head. And for other people, it might be that you can balance having adventures in like two three week chunks like an adventure doesn't have to be years long or months long it could be two weeks of something super cool and awesome like pack crafting in slovenia or going pack crafting in norway in the winter and that could just be a two-week 10-day trip and it would be just as exciting as maybe three months on a bike depending on what you're into but yeah getting that balance right i don't think i don't think anyone could actually say they've got it perfect
1: which makes me wonder, how long do you think leading the type of adventurous life or the adventurous activity you're doing is sustainable with, you know, obviously taking into account social pressures and family pressures and, and long-term financial stability with, of course, the dreaded pension at the end of it?
0: So, I don't want to talk about pensions. <laughs> like, I haven't even thought about pensions. That's totally fine. That's not even on the, like, that's not even on the to-do list at the moment. Um. I don't, I reckon I can keep this up for quite a while longer. I've got quite a long list of things I'd like to do. Um, financially, yep, it might just mean not living anywhere for long periods of time, but, or doing a lot of residential work, which is what I've been doing recently, and um, which I'm fine with, and I'm more than happy to make that sacrifice. But I can't imagine myself having this same lifestyle in like 10, 15 years' time. I don't think I couldn't really do what I'm doing now with a family. But then I'm not really thinking about having a family because I haven't even got a boyfriend, let alone, like, a family <laughs> to think about. So, yeah, that would, there's, there'll be, like, potential issues in the future and things to think about. But then as you change your, what you want from life changes. So...
1: Yeah, that's that's actually a fair point. Actually, it really does because I mean, what I was thinking was that you know you consider all the proliferation at the moment of content and info and gear routes and expectations across social media of people doing adventures and having you know different types of experiences. And is that taking away? I wonder some of the important learning experiences that people need to go through to. Sort of hone their skills, such as curiosity and awareness of other cultures and environments. You know, they're they're seeing so much now on social media and whatever format they use. Has that has that taken away that anticipation, that that adventurous approach to to life?
0: I wonder. That's yeah, it probably has, which is quite sad because, like, you can, like, I can go on if I wanted to go packrafting in Mongolia next week. I could literally. Book a flight, pack up all my stuff, go on satellite images, find out where the rapids are by looking at like where the white fluffy bits are on satellite images, and that's it, you're off. And that is quite sad that you've lost that do not know whats around the corner because you've already mapped it. But I suppose from a safety point of view, it is better. But at the same time, yeah, you have lost that initial, initial bit because there's just so much content, which makes you think that maybe – it's better off just to go and do things without doing any research in the first place and then everything will be new when you get there.
1: <laughs> Which is where it comes back to your uh, to your planning, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what have you discovered most of all about yourself then following these experiences? What, is, what Has there been anything about yourself that's taken you by surprise?
0: Um, need for personal space, that is a big one. So I never thought that I needed personal space that much until Bangladesh was really hard for personal space. It didn't really exist. Iceland the entire time I was pretty much alone and that was absolutely amazing and I always thought that I was like a really outgoing like enthusiastic person and then I was like wait a minute I can't be that person unless I have headspace so the cycling in Australia was perfect because she'd cycle for like two three days have a couple of conversations along the way and then maybe stay at someone's house but when you got to that person's house you'd be like fresh and energized and you could have a conversation about life and everything that it entails but without that period of like quiet and being alone I don't think I can I can be the exact person I want to be when I'm around other people yeah Mm -hmm. it's interesting I think maybe the need to be alone is something that's come up a lot more especially recently on trips because the work I do is with people constantly so I'm 24 7 for a month with a group of 16 year olds and then to balance that out I need space and that's where the adventures come in
1: and I presume you're sharing that experience with the 16-year-olds as well, because they're continually bombarded by life generally at the moment and, and uh, encouraging them to to get outdoors and, and have a few hours or, or more in solitude in, in the
0: hills. Yeah. Or oh, like when I'm on expedition with people, I'll be like, right, you go sit on a rock, you go sit on a rock, you go sit on a rock. You're going to have an hour of quiet time, take a notepad and pen, write down what you're feeling and thinking. And Often, like, you get really good conversations after that hour, you can get everyone around in the circle and you can have a really good conversation about what they actually thought about. Because until you strip away everything else and get rid of phones and s- just stop moving, you don't really actually take time to actually examine your like surroundings and how you feel about them. So that uh, that's really, really amazing to see people go through that, to take away everything from them and then let them discuss it afterwards
1: is there anything that you wish you knew better or in the process of learning to be more knowledgeable with in preparation for future adventures such as you know knowing more birds flora fauna uh, foraging or, or any other skill or or whatever to to enhance the experience
0: oh that's a really good question um common sense i'd like a bit more of that that would be really useful and bicycle maintenance, I think if I'm honest with myself, I probably would have been better off going on like, a two, like you can do like a two-hour bike maintenance basic course for free with most UK councils. I think I would have been probably, that would have been really good to know some basic bike maintenance before I left. And maybe a little bit more like techie stuff would have been useful, like how to use my camping stove before I used it for the first time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I heard you almost burnt the tent down.
0: No, <laughs> it was my hair.
1: Oh, was it like, hair, was it?
0: My fire? But I didn't, so
1: that's fine. Finally, one one final question for you then. It's been lovely talking to you, and there's there's been a whole range of experiences that you've had, and um, I didn't really want to go into any particular uh, experience. I just hope people will take the time to look at your very, very uh, comprehensive website with all the trips on it, which I'd thoroughly recommend. But taking it all into account and the sort of subject matter that we've been looking at, of all the things I could have asked you, what should I have asked you?
0: oh that's great um all the things you could have asked and you didn't um maybe like who inspired you like is there someone that inspired you when you were younger to do this stuff or like did you expect that you would end up doing things like this when you were younger was it in the stars that you were going to do that
1: hmm what would be the answer
0: so like when I was younger I only wanted to be a teacher like that was like I want to be a teacher nothing else like in my head I was already planning my wardrobe for when I was teaching I was like I can get about all my clothes from Marks and Spencers and next um and that was like life and it wasn't until I was like 22 23 that I was like I don't want this and I think maybe one of my main inspirations might have been like my granddad because my granddad is so my granddad's 89 and he still goes ice skating he still can skate and he's the person that taught me how to swim. He taught me how to ice skate, like, and that's quite impressive. And that's quite like a, and yeah, I think quite often I haven't really thought about it too much. Like who's really inspired me from a young age, but granddad was always the sort of person or he still is the sort of person that's like, yep. Yeah, I don't see why there's any reason why you wouldn't do that. Like he did his own bike trips when he was younger. And um, yeah, he still is out and about doing stuff every single day. He's super cool. But yeah, that's that's probably one person. And obviously, Alistair Humphreys, because his book's amazing.
1: <laughs> oh, you creep.
0: I know. <laughs> like, he, I, I did stalk Alistair Humphreys for a while. I went to like seven of his talks and he knew who I was. But I think he probably thought I was a bit weird.
1: My thanks to Alice for taking the time from a busy working December day selling Christmas trees to share her story with us. Good to see she's already an Alistair Humphreys fan and we both talked about the world of adventure travel and the podcasts he's recently released for some time after the interview finished. She's also suggested a few others you might like to hear more about too and this reminds me I must do my little plug for the newsletter over on theoutdoorstation.co.uk Sign up and suggest people you might like to hear more about or Cottage Industries Around the UK. So until next time, folks, I hope the Christmas shopping is going well and take care out there. Bye for now. Thank you for listening
0: to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk.